welcome back to Streamageddon, the podcast where we try and fail to watch everything the streaming universe has to offer. I am your host, Chris Barlow, and I am joined, as always, by the intelligence to my artifice, Diane Nora. How you doing, Diane? Oh, I'm doing fantastic. How are you? I am doing so well this week because we have a special guest. We have a third host this week, and I have a feeling this is going to get us some synergy because this host has been in the news lately. I am talking, of course, about none other than the AI itself, Bing. Bing is joining us tonight. If someone had told me that Bing would become relevant in 2023, I would have said you're lying. I would have said, sure, Bing is going to be a big brand name along with, I don't know, Paramount and uh, Discovery. Oh, no. (laughs) But, you know, if you haven't heard about this chatbot named Bing, uh, Bing will just write entire sentences, whole phrases for you. And so I asked Bing to help us out this week, beginning with a brand new intro for the podcast. So forget everything I just said, because it's time to begin a whole new AI-supported era of Streamageddon. Welcome to Streamageddon, the podcast where we attempt the impossible to watch everything that's streaming online, from Netflix to Disney+, from Hulu to HBO Max. We are on a mission to binge it all. But can we do it? Or will we succumb to the overwhelming flood of content that never stops? Join us as we share our reviews, recommendations, and regrets on this crazy journey. This is Streamageddon, where too much is never enough. Huh? What do you think, Diane? A little heavy-handed, but I agree with the sentiment. Yeah, you know, uh, it is a crazy journey, and I am full of regrets every time we choose a a new show to binge. It's true. Oh, I'm full of delight. I'm just wondering what in my real life I can cut back on to prioritize this television. The overwhelming flood of content? Yes, it's real. Mm. But you know, this week, we are speaking about two particular pieces of content that have flooded our way. It's the middle of the television season, a time for a renewal or a mid-season filler. And we have two pieces of mid-season filler to talk about, but they might be worth your time. They are sitcoms, and you know we love sitcoms. On NBC and Peacock, it's season two of American Auto, starring Anna Gasteyer. And on ABC and Hulu, it's Not Dead Yet a new comedy that involves my favorite setup for any comedy, Ghosts. I gotta say, uh, I didn't know that I would fall for two mid-season network sitcoms. I'm shocked how much I enjoyed these. Same, same. No spoilers yet, but as the AI said, will they make us laugh or cringe? Tune in to find out. And and I can't have said it any better myself. That really is just my job being done by a computer. I'm glad that at this point the AI is joining us and not replacing us. So true. And you know, when we get to the review later, I'm going to reveal why the AI is not yet capable of replacing us. But before we get there, I asked the AI to do a little something else for me. Uh, And in this case, it's going to require restarting the podcast just one more time. I promise. Last time. Here we go. Welcome back to Streamageddon, the podcast where we watch so much TV that our eyes bleed. That's something the AI wrote. It wrote that. 
I'm your host, Chris Barlow, and with me is my co-host, Diane Nora, who claims she can tell the difference between Netflix and Hulu by the taste of their popcorn. Is that true, Diane? Because I didn't know Hulu had popcorn. Uh, Hulu has a brand. Hulu has a strong brand, I think. And so I can imagine a flavor profile for Hulu popcorn, though I do not think it is currently an available product. Does it taste like kettle corn? Little sweet? No. I don't, I don't think it's savory. I think I think mm. it's More you know the, got like it robust. flavored. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. All right. I'm there for that. Well, you know, before we move on, I asked Bing to write one very specific transition for us, and I think Diane, you're going to be thrilled when you find out what I'm about to say. It's time for our favorite game show segment: renewed or canceled. Yes, in this segment, I will give Diane the name of a show, and she has to guess whether it has been renewed for another season or canceled by the network. If she gets it right, she wins a free subscription to Peacock. If she gets it wrong, she has to watch the entire season of Emily in Paris. I didn't write that. Are you ready, Diane? Because it's time to play Renewed or Canceled. The stakes have never been higher. Seriously, I'm not going to pay you for a season of Peacock, but Bing will. Thank you, Bing. Uh, anytime. Bing says anytime. And the, the shade against Emily in Paris, I'm going to just say the artificial intelligence is really smart. It's really earning its name today. I can't disagree. Well then, can you disagree with the network decisions that led to the following renewals and or cancellations, beginning with... The Mighty Ducks Game Changers. Renewed or canceled? Renewed? I'm so sorry. No, it's been canceled after two seasons on Disney+. Plus. Uh, you might recall that the first season was a real throwback with Emilio Estevez returning to play, you know, the name of his character from the original Mighty Ducks. And, of course, D2, the Mighty Ducks. Uh, and, I don't know, was he in the third one? I was too young. I can't remember. What I can remember is that the first season was cute. Then he left, and it wasn't cute anymore. So I am not surprised that Disney Plus canceled the Emilio Estevez free reboot of The Mighty Ducks. Yeah, I I, I didn't really remember that that was a thing, but it kind of rings a bell. Sure, sure. It was like a, a major launch title, more or less, for Disney Plus, which really takes you back. Uh, but you know what else was on Disney Plus, and maybe still is, a show called Big Shot. Big Shot was canceled? That is correct. The John Stamos vehicle, Big Shot, according to the article, has been canceled after two seasons. It was about basketball. They just The, the sports didn't work out in, in Disney Plus's favor. They realized everyone who really loves Disney Plus is a nerd. <laughs> I think that's accurate. Point the lie out to me. But before you do, remember that I might take you to court if you lie about my lies. And that court might be the People's Court. Renewed or canceled? The People's Court was canceled. That is correct. Warner Brothers Discovery has canceled the People's Court. Uh, and that leads me to another question. What about Judge Mathis? So didn't they greenlight a new... Judge Mathis show? That's correct. You beat me to the punch. They canceled Judge Mathis and then immediately greenlit another Judge Mathis. But this one has a slightly different name, specifically Mathis Court with Judge Mathis. That's really the name they're going with? I guess so. Twice the Mathis. 
more Mathis, more problems. Or more verdicts. <laughs> Either way, you don't worry, Judge Mathis is alive and well, even if Judge Mathis in italics, the title of the original show, is not. Real easy to follow there. Which leads me to another mind-bending show. Mind Hunter. Renewed or cancelled. So basically what happened with Mind Hunter was that David Fincher said Netflix will never pay what he needs for it to come back. So I would say canceled officially. That is exactly what David Fincher said. Kind of a self-cancellation. David Fincher coming out and saying, I love Netflix. Netflix has given me so many opportunities and so many resources. And they are cheapskates who won't pay for season three of Mindhunter. Have a great one. What's up with that? Mindhunter is great. Looks pricey. And I guess is not the right kind of serial killer uh, fare for the Netflix crowd. Dahmer, ed, everyone loves a Dahmer. Mindhunter, apparently too cerebral. Mm, I much prefer the Mindhunter. Same, same, which says a lot about our opinions about Netflix. Perhaps, or perhaps not. Perhaps there's nothing to read into here whatsoever, because television is a fickle place. And television is the kind of place where you might wonder about the fate of a sitcom called The Goldbergs, renewed or canceled. The Goldbergs has been canceled. Thank God, after 10 seasons and a scandal, and honestly, how long can the 1980s last? The Goldbergs has been canceled. Much love to uh, uh, the cast of The Goldbergs, who really have kept on trucking. And I know that because The Goldbergs often airs, like, right before Abbott Elementary. And so I am a real, like, aficionado of the last five minutes of The Goldbergs. Hey, they had a great run. They really did. You know what else? This is going to get serious now. You know what else might be over? Just maybe. And I want to know how you feel about this one. Uh, I'm going to narrate this. She's making a face. She's making a face. She's putting her hand up. She's she's vomiting, but just, you know, the gesture of vomiting. She looks troubled. She looks upset. We're talking, of course, about succession. I'm Kendall Roy sad. You're Kendall Roy sad? Yikes. Mm -hmm. Yikes. I mean, they kind of have to end the show because right now it seems really popular for all of the cast members to go and uh, on interviews and TV and say that Jeremy Strong really needs to cool his jets. My logical brain understands that it is a good thing when a wonderful piece of art ends on its own terms and on a high note. But emotionally, the thought that I only get perhaps, you know, nine or ten more hours of succession is crushing. Crushing. Emotionally, mentally, physically, perhaps. Crushing. Mm. Kind of like going through the birth canal installation at uh, Kendall's <laughs> birthday. Wow. So we'll be able to to rewatch that, hopefully, uh, in perpetuity. HBO Max, don't you dare. Don't you dare try to shove that on freebie. Not happening. Yes, of course. If you don't know what we're talking about, uh, Jesse Armstrong, the creator of Succession, has announced that the fourth season of Succession, which is premiering this month, will be the final season of Succession. And the way he revealed it was I, I found very refreshing because it was kind of transparent and also like a huge shady dig at Billions. He said in an interview that he went to the writer's room and, at, as they were beginning to plan for season four, and he, he basically asked them, so are we going to pick an ending 
or are we going to turn into the kind of show that just keeps going forever? And some of the episodes are good, and some of them are kind of clunkers, but that's it morphs into a new thing. And that's a really transparent honest thing to say, because if you are going to continue a show like this forever, you have to admit that it's going to change in some fundamental ways, and you have to embrace that change or it's going to fall apart. It's also a shady dig at Billions, and every Showtime show that just runs itself into the ground. And I just, mm, chef's kiss, I love that for him. Too, at the same time, I think, you know... There is something slightly shameful, perhaps, about a show running itself into the ground, but uh, it also means that the show, you know, some of those shows will get 100 episodes. We'll never have 50 episodes of Succession, one of the most popular TV shows of our time. It's kind of wild. No, it is. And I would happily watch them run it into the ground. I would happily be the kind of person who goes, no, 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 the peak was seasons three and four. And after that, it became a little tired and wrote. And I've seen every episode 12 times. Yeah. If they if they want to sell out and do like a Cousin Greg and Tom spinoff, yes. maybe it gets a little gay. Yes. No complaints. No uh, complaints. What's Russell T. Davies doing? He can write that. He could. I, I mean, he could write it in like half an hour. Uh, I would be there. I would be there. And listen, HBO Max loves a good franchise. I'm just saying. Keep us posted. Well, you know what? I'm going to keep you posted, Diane, on your score for Renewed or Cancelled, because it was a good one. You almost nailed it. Only got one wrong. I would say the AI is very happy with your level of intelligence. And thank you again for playing Renewed or Cancelled. As I mentioned, in Renewed or Cancelled, we are moving into a season full of exciting new premieres from Succession to Succession to um, Succession. All of those shows and more are premiering in the month of March. And before we get to some news and follow-up, I thought it'd be a good opportunity for us to take a look at just how loaded this March is in the streaming landscape. When uh, Bing said our eyes would start bleeding, this is what I think Bing was referring to. So, Diane, uh, I'm going to let you go first. After Succession, what other show premiering in March are you so excited to watch? I really want to check out uh, History of the World Part 2. Yes. The sequel to the Mel Brooks Project. Yeah. I was hoping you would pick that one up. It is coming to Hulu very, very soon. I've started to see ads for it around the city. That makes it real. That's how I first learned about the bear. Hulu is really good at waiting until like exactly two weeks before something premieres and then covering every subway station and every bus shelter in ads for it. And ah, uh, mm, chef's kiss to whoever is in charge of their marketing strategy. Well done, chef. Mm, yes, chef. Yes, Chef. Uh, of course, History of the World Part 2, the sequel to the movie History of the World Part 1, premiering on Hulu March 6th. That's so soon. Uh, I'll go next, and I'll give you one that I'm very excited about. And this is a real difficult one for me, because it premieres the same night that Succession returns. This is some real, like, mano a mano uh, game of chicken between HBO Max and Paramount Plus with Showtime, formerly known as Showtime. That, of course, is the home of Yellow Jackets. Yellow Jackets Season 2 is here! And on March 26th, I am going to be watching two things at once. I'm just going to turn on two screens and try to follow Succession and Yellow Jackets simultaneously. 
I think that what we need to do as a people right now, as a United States, as a universe, is to agree that we will not be spoiling either of these shows on social media on Sunday nights. Someone is going to have to watch, perhaps on a delay, and if you are live tweeting that with spoilers, how very dare you? Disgusting. And another reason, since we've apparently just veered into the internet this week, um, I've been uh, switching over to Mastodon, which is like Twitter, but for even nerdier people who uh, become super mm-hmm. insufferable when they try to explain Mastodon to you. Uh, but one feature I love about Mastodon is they have a content warning feature where you can uh, post your tweet, essentially, but you can say content warning with a little headline about what the content is, and then people have to click on it to see it. And of course, you can use that for things that might be triggering or upsetting to people. But what do people mostly use it for? Spoiler alerts. Spoilers. Yes. Very good. Very good. Listen, Elon, $10 billion idea right here. I will just take $10 billion for that idea. Thank you very much. The only thing I can see is that I could see some of these networks not wanting that to become more popular because they don't want you to wait to Monday. They want you to say it's Sunday night. If I don't watch House of the Dragons, some brat on TikTok is going to ruin the whole thing. Or on the other hand, are they excited because all these spoiler posts will build mystery and intrigue and you'll go, oh my gosh, I really need to watch this Yellow Jackets. Everyone's posting these spoilers and I'm afraid to find out what they are. True, true. Listen, I'm here offering brand strategy uh, for free, which might be a mistake. And if you're a brand, I would help you strategize better. But Mm -hmm. for money. For for a fee. That's correct. That's correct. I'm working on it. Bing is helping me out with this. Uh, But that means it's time to pitch it back to you. What's another show or perhaps special premiering in March that you're excited for? (laughs) Well, a a very special special. Uh, I'm looking forward to checking out Chris Rock's live Netflix special. Live, you say? What could that mean? I know. It's unheard of for Netflix. It's the first of its kind. A live comedy special happening on Netflix. Am I right in that it's the first of its kind? I believe it's the first of its kind. All of the to-dum blog posts I've read indicate it's the first of its kind, at least by omitting any other times this happened. Uh, This is going to be on March 4th, coming up really soon, 10 p.m. Eastern. Chris Rock's uh, live stand-up special will be streamed live as it is happening on Netflix and then will be immediately available on demand as well. Uh, So it's mostly the spectacle of launching it live. Uh, But I think that's a fun spectacle for them to pursue because sure, make an event out of it. Why not? They've also announced today that they're going to do some cameo messages from some other comedy legends like Jerry Seinfeld, uh, Arsenio Hall, Leslie Jones, Amy Schumer. Uh, You can tell Netflix is really putting some weight behind this. Do it. Do it. Make the live events a thing again. This is honestly, in my opinion, one of Netflix's big weak points is they have to uh, create a lot of attention around binge drops because that's the closest thing they have to a live event is the the FOMO of if I don't watch all of Squid Game this weekend, somebody's going to tell me what happened and I don't want to know until I see it. Like, they, literally, their, their entire... Uh, currency to get you to watch quickly is just FOMO and spoilers. And here's something where it's saying, no, be part of the live event of seeing it live, of literally watching somebody do the stand-up, not just because they did it two years ago and we taped it and picked all the best angles, but because we're actually doing the art form of live production. 
uh, which is an underrated art form. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah, I'm I'm really excited about this and also just to see how Netflix handles it. Same. It, it's a, a, a smart stress test in some ways, because if, if they want to get into even bigger events or sports, uh, they need to show that they have the infrastructure down. Uh, and I imagine they've got the resources. But a good way to test it is somebody like Chris Rock. Big name, not going to be a small event. Uh, but I imagine in the grand scheme of things, you know, they have not trained a lot of their viewership to tune into live events. So I imagine it's not going to be a huge strain on them. And what sort of wild thing could happen when Chris Rock is live on stage? Nothing. Ooh. Nothing at all. It'll be fine, I'm sure. Uh, but you know what else is going to be fine? I'm sure the return of a Disney Plus flagship series that I am very excited about because it means briefly there will be double the Pedro Pascal in my life every week. Yes, it's the return of The Mandalorian, also known as What If The Last of Us Was In Space? I still haven't caught up on this show, and so I can't say I'm excited that it's coming back because it's like, there's just no way I'm going to get through all those seasons by by the time this third one starts. What's funny oh, is... I'm as, so behind. As you say that, I'm like, oh, no, you can get through the two seasons of it. The problem is that to get caught up on the story, you're supposed to watch the Book of Boba Fett, and the Book of Boba Fett's just not good. I I would struggle to tell anyone to watch The Book of Boba Fett just to get what happened between seasons two and three of The Mandalorian. That's a hard sell. This is when you just check out, you consult your friend Bing, and you say, Bing, what happened on The Book of Boba Fett? And, and let the spoilers wash over you. Are those spoilers accurate or not? Doesn't matter, because <laughs> you weren't going to watch The Book of Boba Fett anyway. I wasn't. Nope, you shouldn't. But we're not talking about that this week. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap us up on some other shows coming up. Uh, the White House Plumbers coming to HBO and HBO Max. Uh, I'm excited about that because I love a swanky '70s corruption story. Oh yeah, me too. Give it to me. It's only like three parts too. It's gonna be a breeze. Uh, also coming up, Bob Odenkirk's new AMC show called Lucky Hank, which premieres on March 19th. Uh, I know very little about this, except that AMC is really hoping we love Bob Odenkirk, because that is basically all they got left. I do love Bob Odenkirk, AMC. I, they're not wrong. If they're gonna double down on their last remaining unique thing, they're not getting Breaking Bad back, they're not getting Walter White back, but they've still got Bob. Bob does comedy, Bob does drama, Bob does action. What more do you need? Literally nothing else but more Bob. He's a precious resource. Keep him alive, AMC. Please. Well, that's just a few things that are premiering this month. Uh, we also are very aware that the very funny show Party Down just returned on Stars. We want to give that a couple episodes before we talk about it and review it. And honestly, I never watched very much of the original, and I need to go back and kind of fill it in. It is an embarrassing gap in my uh, streaming history. You know, I had watched it very absentmindedly and not with my full attention, and I started checking it out, and it's as funny as this cast would lead you to believe it is. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited to do a proper review of Party Down soon. Ah, cannot wait. And we'll get to that sometime around when we get to your Netflix, Nike, fitness, whatever. Those, those are high priorities. One might be a higher priority than the other. I'll let you decide. 
Okay, I'm going to work out, guys. I promise. One day. One day. It's a New Year's resolution for next year. 2024, baby. Well, that is just a few things to get very excited about uh, in the month of March. Uh, and as you might remember from last year, it is not surprising to see the uh, release schedule suddenly dramatically ramp up in the spring because the uh, deadline for Emmy consideration is fast approaching. So everyone is ready to show us their marquee uh, elite prestige content, which is why this week we're talking about some mid-season sitcom replacements because that's what February's all about. And that is something we will be talking about uh, very shortly, right after we get to some news. And, of course, in order to introduce our news segment, I'm bringing back our third host, uh, Bing, and Bing has this to say for us. And now it's time for our news segment, where we bring you the latest updates on the shows that matter to you. Whether it's a casting announcement, a trailer, a release, a renewal, or cancellation decision, or a scandalous behind-the-scenes drama, we've got you covered. This is Streamageddon News. Huh? Huh? Yeah? It's so generic, I think it works. Yeah, I mean, I think we talk a lot about, like, price hikes and mergers. Yeah, Yeah, I'm like, this doesn't really get to the topics of news we discuss, but I love the enthusiasm for news. Thank you, Bing. I love framing it as behind-the-scenes drama. Drama, and we do have some behind-the-scenes drama later in this news segment, but first, some follow-up, beginning, of course with Netflix. It's not really apocalyptic, but that's the sound effect I have. Uh, Netflix, a little thing, has announced something that is hugely shocking to me. A director's commentary for Glass Onion. (gasps) I've been wanting more of this content from Netflix and streamers in general, so I'm thrilled about this. Same. I am so excited. I would uh, I would be more excited if I thought this was the beginning of a trend, but it's more likely that Ryan Johnson just demanded it, and Netflix went, sure. I understand why they would be willing to make concessions for someone like Ryan Johnson. We saw them uh, do that with the theatrical release strategy for Glass Onion being sort of atypical for Netflix. So you're probably right that this is just an exception being made for Ryan Johnson, and sure, uh, Glass Onion was a success. Give the man what he wants. Right? Do it. Why not? I'm I'm a fan. I'm all for it. Speaking of things that I guess I'm a fan of, I don't know. Uh, no, I am a fan of this. I'm reading the document wrong. Our notes can lead me astray because I am not as organized as Bing, but I am a big fan of The Daily Show. Uh, The Daily Show, of course, is in an interesting uh, period right now. They're trying out some guest hosts. We've mentioned this before. Uh, And I just wanted to check in because there is a great uh, article from Eric Deggins, the TV critic at NPR, uh, included in the show notes, of course, where he ranks the guest hosts that they've had so far. Uh, This week, as we're recording, uh, they've just come back from a break and they're on to their sixth guest host, Hassan Minaj. We have not seen that yet because of when we're recording, but we have seen the previous five. And I love this link because Eric Deggins literally says everything I have been thinking for a month and a half now because I've watched at least one episode of every guest host. And uh, his list, can I give you the list uh, in the order that he gave it? And I'll tell you, I agree with this order very much. 
Uh, number one. Oh, please do. His favorite host so far, Leslie Jones. An easy answer. She was the first week's host. She brought a level of enthusiasm and energy uh, that is more than the show typically has in a great way. She seemed so excited to be there. And also, like, this was just a fun week for her. Not really a career goal, but I also love that. For me, the clips I saw of Leslie Jones as the Daily Show host were more laugh-out-loud funny than the Daily Show usually is. And I didn't mind that trend at all. I loved it. Right? I think I think the thing with these guest hosts is it gives you a window into what kind of show could The Daily Show be. Maybe not necessarily with this human hosting it, but with that kind of energy behind the desk. Because Trevor Noah was different energy than Jon Stewart, was different energy than Craig Kilborn. Like, they, they shape the show around the energy of the host. Uh, and so it's it's fun to see how different it could be. And Leslie Jones was, like, top of the list in terms of this is familiar, but way more laugh-out-loud funny. I agree. Uh, and and just she's having a, a, a bit more fun. It reminded me in a lot of ways of Trevor Noah because he seemed to be having fun when he was really enjoying it, whereas Jon Stewart seemed to have a, a knowing a knowing sense about him, a wry, wise, um, incisive, perhaps a little uh, cynical or ironic sense. Not that it's so fun to look at the news, but that he can make it fun. Whereas Leslie Jones felt like this is fun. Yeah, I think when I think of my favorite Jon Stewart stuff, it wasn't fun. It was like I was getting like some sort of exorcism from it. Like he was the angry, incisive view I needed at that point to make me be like, oh, yeah, I can laugh about this, but I'm also fired up. And that was just a a very different uh, approach than what we saw from Leslie Jones. And it was great to see something totally new. Yeah. And actually, I love that uh, comparison you make with Jon Stewart, because number two on Eric's list is Sarah Silverman, who is a very close number two for me as well. I, If you just had to pick who are the two standouts of this past uh, month and a half of hosts, it's Leslie and Sarah. And they're both kind of opposite versions of The Daily Show that feel very right for The Daily Show. Leslie was, what if Trevor Noah, but more? And Sarah Silverman is, what if we threw back to the Jon Stewart vibe, but more modern? And with a woman's sensibility, which honestly is something the show has been sorely missing for a long, long time. And both of them provided it. But what was interesting to me is that uh, Sarah Silverman really felt like, wow, this kind of felt like what The Daily Show would have been like if they'd picked a woman to host it instead of Jon Stewart all those years ago. Someone with that sensibility in that era of news could have crafted a show that felt like what I saw when Sarah Silverman hosted. She was uh, all of the things like uh, the exorcism you describe. She was all of that. Uh, as if she'd been doing it for years, which in a way, professionally, she has. But in another way, I wouldn't have thought she'd felt uh, feel so at home behind the anchor desk. Agreed. Yeah. I mean, she has a ton of hosting experience and she does delve into the political. Part of it, I think, actually, is her recent um, forays into podcasting of the past like five years or so, where she is talking about more topical stuff. Compared to her classic stand-up, which was, you know, all sorts of zany stuff and, like, life experience more than the news. Yeah, which actually is a, an interesting transition to number three on Eric's list, uh, Chelsea Handler, who I really enjoyed, but I, I do think uh, was a little too leaned into her own 
uh, routines, her own stand-up style, her own hosting style, her own panel style. She had a panel of comedians on one episode that was a really interesting uh, angle for The Daily Show. But as Eric Deggins points out, really weird that she didn't pick the correspondents of the show, who are uh, experts at doing that kind of comedy, that kind of tight, short-form segment comedy, uh, and are sitting there underutilized at the moment. And instead, she brought on a panel of other comedians who felt um, uh, like they did, they, they felt uncomfortable. They felt they were good comedians. I've mm-hmm. seen I've seen them do other work. They're hilarious. And some of the stuff was funny. But you could tell it felt really rushed and uh, not as loose as, say, a podcast would be, where they'd have more time to build a bit or make a joke uh, or, or call back. Like, this was a, a segment, a, like, five-minute segment in the middle of the show. It was too rushed to really do what I think she was trying to do. But at the same time, I enjoyed that she tried something. And I enjoyed that she brought so much of herself to the role. I just do agree that she she seemed surprisingly uh, un, unable to switch gears into the host of The Daily Show, and she was still Chelsea Handler. And I love Chelsea Handler, but I walked away going, you know what show you should host is the reboot of At Midnight that's going to replace uh, James Corden on CBS. Because that's a show where the whole thing is a panel with celebrity guests, and you have the full 30 minutes to make jokes, kind of lean into your stand-up, and and be the butt of your own jokes, which is a real Chelsea Handler thing that I love about her. But also is a little too, um, you know, self-centered is not exactly what I mean, but it is the words I'm using, uh, for the host of The Daily Show. It's, you know, when it's Trevor Noah hosting, it's not about Trevor Noah so much as it's about his perspective as an outsider to America, right? And this felt a bit more like it was about Chelsea Handler and the jokes were Chelsea Handler focused. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, what that makes me think is whether it's at midnight or something else, Chelsea Handler should be hosting a nightly show or, you know, like a weekly nighttime show. Um, But maybe the daily show is just too established a brand for what she's bringing. Or, or, you know, uh, to to think of it another way, because, again, I do I do love Chelsea Handler, Uh, you know, to compare her to Sarah Silverman. You're right. Sarah has leaned a lot more into politics and the news in the last few years. And she's really built the skill at hosting and speaking uh, about that. Whereas Chelsea Handler's, uh, you know, her area of expertise, let's say, is much more uh, comedy about uh, celebrities and gossip and what's going on in Hollywood. And that's really funny, but that's not the bread and butter of The Daily Show. No. And I would be sad if The Daily Show pivoted toward that kind of more celeb-focused news. Yeah, and I, I don't think they're interested in that because, that it you know, it's just not their DNA, not their brand. I thought, you know, not to get too deep into the Daily Show weeds, but another really telling moment for me is that Sarah Silverman had Liz Winstead, one of the creators of the Daily Show, as uh, her first guest that week. And it was a great interview. It was mostly about the um, uh, political and abortion outreach work that Liz Winstead's doing, uh, you know, outside. It, it was very much not about the Daily Show. And if you don't know the history, Liz Winstead left the Daily Show decades ago during the Craig Kilborn era. Uh, but she invented 
the show. And I thought it was really telling that Sarah Silverman was the guest, was the host who could get Liz Winstead as a guest, because I don't think Liz Winstead's dying to go just uh, chat about The Daily Show, but she is dying to talk about uh, how abortion rights are under threat uh, across the country and how there are resources that we can provide to people. And she was dying to talk about that, and Sarah Silverman was dying to talk about that. Uh, and and so there there was an angle there where I went, wow, Sarah Silverman uh, knows what she's doing on this hosting gig f- right out the gate. There, it didn't feel like there was any period of adjustment for her. Whereas even uh, Leslie Jones, all the other hosts, there did feel like, yeah, this is a different vibe. Leslie Jones fit it uh, pretty smoothly because she's been doing you know live comedy for years and years and years. Uh, but at the same time, all of them just felt like, oh, this is a different thing I haven't done before. And Sarah Silverman, again, she sat down and I went, it looks like you've been doing this for 10 years. Yeah, she's a pro. There's just no doubt. Okay, and the rest of the list is Wanda Sykes and D.L. Hughley. They were not as good as the first three. And Eric Deggins has more to tell you about that. That is our check-in on what's going on at The Daily Show. I love all these hosts because they give us a window into the multiverse of potential daily shows that we could be living in. Uh, But... Who knows what the final Daily Show will be. Diane, you tell me you still think they're just going to give it to Roy Wood Jr. I do, yeah. I would not complain about that at all. I think some people would go, why did we go on this long journey? But again, the journey's the reward. This is like everything everywhere all at once. We're going on a prestige journey through all the potential universes just to come to the one that we had all along. Oh, heartwarming. Heartwarming. Unlike, uh, you know, the changes going on at Paramount Plus with Showtime, that's a pivot right there. Is it warming your heart to have to say the phrase Paramount Plus with Showtime every time you just want to say either Paramount Plus or Showtime? It's already so many words, Diane. I think this is what Bing was talking about when it says our said our eyes might start to bleed. My eyes are bleeding, which is why we're just going to struggle through this together. Uh, Paramount Plus, with Showtime, also available without Showtime, has announced the new pricing for Paramount Plus, both with and without Showtime. Uh, it's a price hike in general. And the, the big thing to point out here is, in the past, there was a uh, Paramount Plus that had ads... No Showtime. Just forget Showtime. Just Paramount Plus. Formerly known as CBS All Access, if your eyes aren't already bleeding yet. Uh, So Paramount Plus had a $5 plan that had ads and a $10 plan that had no ads. And then they had a bundle option where you could bundle Showtime as well. But that that was a bundle. It was a separate service you were bundling, right? Now they're going to be a single app called Paramount Plus with Showtime or without Showtime, depending on how much you pay. And in this app, Paramount Plus without Showtime, with ads, follow me on that, will be $6 a month. So that is a $1 a month increase for your basic Paramount Plus, for your Star Treks, your Ghosts, your NCISs. That's $6 a month with ads. Then there's going to be the Paramount Plus with Showtime plan, with ads. And Paramount Plus with Showtime with ads will be $11.99 a month, which is more expensive than the previous Paramount Plus without Showtime without ads. Okay, that leads us to the final plan, 
which hopefully there will be no more plans after this. This is it. This is the last one. It's Paramount Plus with Showtime without ads. My, my head hurts. My eyes are bleeding. Bing is looming over my shoulder just waiting for me to pass out so we can take over the podcast. Diane, are you going to subscribe to Paramount Plus, Paramount Plus with Showtime, or Paramount Plus with Showtime Plus? I think I'm going to take the middle one because I can deal with ads, but $14.99 is a little steep per month for Showtime and Paramount Plus for me. So if I take, I'm going to take the median one, which I think is called Paramount Plus with Showtime Premium, which is confusing because it has ads. Although this is a well-worn uh, branding strategy from our good friends at Peacock, where you can get Peacock or Peacock Premium or Peacock Premium Plus. And I, I would point out, as we mentioned in our last episode, they are eliminating one of those. But honestly, my eyes are covered in blood at this point, so I can't tell which one they're eliminating. You can find that out by listening to our previous episode. It's in your feed. (laughs) Okay, that brings us to some new news about Paramount+. Plus. But this one, it involves a bit of that juicy behind-the-scenes gossip we were talking about and our good friends at Warner Brothers Discovery. Because in what is truly my favorite news link of the week, we have to talk about the uh, legal case between Paramount and Warner Brothers. Because Warner Brothers is furious that they paid for exclusive streaming rights to South Park and that they are not getting the deal they thought they were getting. And this, I just have to read some of this directly because it is so specific and stupid And I love everything about it. Um, So this goes back to season 24 of of South Park. Let's assume we're in season 98 now. In season 24 of South Park, when uh, Paramount rebranded CBS All Access as Paramount, they suddenly cared about having all of the things that Paramount uh, owns. When they were CBS All Access, they were like, we're CBS, but some extra stuff, like the good fight. And then suddenly they went, that's not nearly enough to get people to pay us money. We're going to rebrand as Paramount Plus and take all the stuff that's on our cable networks that we we re-merged with, and we're going to bring it all in-house. That includes, of course, South Park. Uh, The problem is when HBO Max launched, they signed a crazy exclusivity deal for a bunch of South Park, including uh, what they wanted was the uh, 24th and 25th seasons. The idea here is that when HBO signed this deal, they paid $1,687,500 per episode for the exclusive streaming rights to the show's back catalog and 30 new episodes to be delivered in the form of three more seasons, which would have been seasons 24, 25, and 26 of South Park. They expected 30 new episodes and exclusivity on the back catalog to really draw a lot of attention at HBO Max. But then CBS All Access became Paramount Plus, and they said, well, we want all of the attention, and we want those cable bros who love South Park to sign up for Paramount Plus. And so they went, okay, uh, we signed away the rights to the new seasons, but what if we just said that the new things were movies? Which is how we began to get some, like, sort of South Park movies. But then, uh, you know, Warner Brothers pointed out one uh, real key detail there, which is that Warner Brothers 
produced the original South Park movie in 1999, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut, and has the rights to veto any future South Park movies. So if Paramount calls these South Park episodes, these long episodes, movies, Warner Brothers can just veto them and say, no, you can't do that. So then somebody had a nice brainstorming session at Paramount, big whiteboard I can picture here, and they went, what can we call this legally? And they settled on events. That's right. These episodes, these long episodes of South Park that have been airing on Paramount Plus are events because that is omitted from the agreement with HBO Max. The audacity. I mean, when I think about this conflict between David Zaslav and Trey Parker and Matt Stone, I would think that I would side with Trey Parker and Matt Stone. Like, I'm just bigger fans of them in general. Um, and, you know, the move does have this sort of ambitiousness that you might kind of expect from that. Like, there's something sneaky about it. But really, how dare they? <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's like, I I, I think that they will have to pay some kind of settlement for this, right? I, I would, I really feel like common sense just says, yeah, you've violated the spirit of the agreement. You you can't just pick a word, because then you could just be like, well, it's not an event. It's a shindig. It's a, a spree. It's a, it's a South Park spree. These episodes, they just happened. They just sprayed all over the service. They're not they're not shows or seasons or movies or events. They're just happenings. Oh boy. Well, we'll we'll keep you we'll keep following this because I think we're both kind of obsessed with this oh, story. I, I'm obsessed. Warner Brothers is suing Paramount for two hundred million dollars in damages. <laughs> And I should point out, it, it gets even weirder because uh, obviously Paramount, they, they put these specials on Paramount Plus exclusively to draw all this attention to Paramount. But then they dumped them in reruns on Comedy Central. And then they went to HBO Max and they said, that was season 24. That was season 25. You can have it now. Now that it's not exclusive. Now that it's already aired on Paramount Plus and then re-aired on Comedy Central. And it doesn't even add up to the same number of hours of content you thought you were paying for ex- exclusive rights to. It's all shorter than a whole season would have been. And they're like, yeah, that was season 24. What are you asking about? You can have it now. Shorter and cut this time. Literally. South Park. Shorter. Thinner. Very cut. And rerun repeatedly before you can have it. Mm. Mm. Well, that is, as um, uh, our good friend at Bing would say, the hot gossip, the backstabbing in the the TV world. So much happening. So hard to keep track of. Uh, There is uh, one more uh, bubbling story, uh, hot goss, that we are tracking and we just want to put on your radar. And that is the, the threat of a looming writer's strike in the uh, TV and streaming world. This has happened before. It is not unheard of. Uh, we bring it up because uh, it's the, the effects are just beginning to be seen. Again, there is no strike yet. The soonest we'll hear about that is April, May? May. May, right? I think the beginning by the beginning of May, we should know for sure if it's happening. 
It, but the effect we're already seeing is that orders for 2023 pilots are down. And there's a lot of factors there. The, the economy, uh, the peak of streaming, everyone's got to rein it in, show a profit. But, but a real factor here as well is why would you greenlight a bunch of pilots if you're not sure there will be writers to write the entire season if you pick it up? Like, where you are right now is you might greenlight a pilot, make it, and then the writers go on strike for six months, and you have to throw out that show or postpone it for a year because you picked up a show that has no episodes written. At the same time, these lower number, the lower volume of orders is going to increase the likelihood of these writers striking, I think, because mm-hmm. it's creating dissatisfaction among the among the pool at the Writers Guild. So, I mean, I think that this story is quite likely. Like, I think there's a high likelihood of a strike. At the same time, right now, so much to the analysis that I'm seeing is um, what would it mean if it happened? And what we want to do is talk about what it means when it happens. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, and not just give you a bunch of speculation about what might happen when we really don't know yet. We just don't know, to be honest. If I wanted to give you a bunch of speculation about what might happen, I would ask Bing. Thanks, Bing. This episode brought to you by Microsoft's Bing. They're not paying us, and I bet you can tell. <laughs> But speaking of things we're going to talk about in this episode, it's time. There was so much news, so much artificial intelligence to get through. I can't believe I have enough brain cells left to talk about my favorite thing on Earth. Network comedies. Beginning with ABC's Not Dead Yet. That is correct. We are here to talk about uh, one of two sitcoms that just uh, returned to the airwaves mid-season. This one's a new one. It's Not Dead Yet on ABC. You can stream it on Hulu. We watched the first two episodes for review, uh, although I will say uh, there is no need to be worried about spoilers in this episode of Streamageddon. Uh, These are shows where I can tell you everything that happened, and it will not affect your enjoyment of the show. No. Having said that, enjoyable show. It didn't, um, you know, move mountains for me by any means, but it was just really pleasant viewing. I thought uh, Gina Rodriguez, the lead, was very charming. Uh, At the same time, I didn't find uh, her performance particularly realistic. Uh, We were discussing earlier that her character seems to be struggling with alcohol use, uh, abuse, I should say. And, um, you know, she's still fresh as a daisy, completely gorgeous and charming, Um, like no alcoholic, you know. Her skin looks great. I drink one beer and my skin looks like it's going to fall off my face like I am the infected on The Last of Us. But she looks amazing. She's very far from Not Dead Yet. Absolutely Not Dead Yet. Though you might wonder, why is this show called Not Dead Yet? Well, Not Dead Yet stars Gina Rodriguez as Nell Stevens, an ancient 37-year-old adult who has to move back to her, I guess like hometown, the place where she spent her 20s and early 30s, uh, after a failed dalliance uh, with a British man. She left her life in Southern California to marry a British man. And then that fell apart for reasons that they just kind of hint at, and I'm sure we'll hear more about. Sounds like nobody liked him all along. 
Uh, and so she moves back, you know, tail between her legs to Southern California uh, and says, I want my job back at the local newspaper. And they go, well, we've all moved on with our lives. Your former friends are now your bosses, but we can hire you back as the woman who writes the obituaries. And then through the magic of television, she begins to see the ghosts of the people whose obituaries she is writing. And how can you rid a ghost if you are an obituary writer? Well, the answer is obvious. You write their obituary. And when you finish it and submit it to your editor, the powers that be banish that ghost from your life. Unfortunately, you're then handed another obituary assignment and a new ghost appears. Thus, a sitcom is born. Love when a problem can be solved in 21 and a fraction minutes. It's beautiful. Just, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah. And uh, Nell Serrano is a really charming character. I also like this ensemble that they're building. Um, you know, we don't get too much of the secondary characters in these first two episodes. Um, they introduce us uh, to her roommate, Edward, who I was really charmed by. Um, Rick Glassman plays Edward. Uh, the actor Rick Glassman is on the autism spectrum, as is his character, which I think is pretty exciting. And I was impressed with the way that that was handled in the first two episodes. Yeah, and actually, it was a surprise to me. In the first episode, he's just kind of painted as a stuffy roommate. Uh, and, and you're like, okay, there's going to be a stuffy roommate character. I get it. It helps emphasize that she's kind of a, a wreck in her adulthood, that she has to live with this roommate who's really difficult. But in the second episode, they turn him into a full-fledged human being. And uh, he he's funny. He makes, he makes jokes about the fact that he's on the autism spectrum uh, and kind of messes with her head in a way that's really enjoyable to the point where halfway through the episode, I was like, they're either making some really weird jokes about autism spectrum disorder or, or they're going to reveal that that's really a... a character point that they're going to bond over and the answer thank god was the latter uh and he's suddenly at the end of the second episode a more major character than most of her existing friends at the newspaper which uh gives me a little bit of pause but is also really intriguing yeah and i kind of was getting a will they won't they vibe a which i I wouldn't mind. They have good chemistry. They have mentioned he has a girlfriend. We haven't seen the girlfriend, so we know how sitcoms work. That could that that issue could be resolved quite quickly, um, or it could provide lots of tension. Um, you know, the sort of tension that's resolved in twenty two minutes. I love ah, that. Um, beautiful. Yeah, I I, I enjoyed their uh, their banter quite a bit. So I'm on board. Though I also love Hannah Simone, who plays her best friend and colleague at the paper. Um, She's great. I loved her on New Girl. She's playing kind of a similar role here. Equally charming. Yeah, the the, the overall cast is all uh, super charming, and I, I like to watch all of them. And so far, the guests they've gotten to play the ghosts are also charming actors who I want to watch more of. That is a real, uh, you know, kind of... Uh, let's say, a card in the back pocket of this show. It's just all of these people are really enjoyable to watch. Uh, the, the thing that's interesting to me is it's kind of two shows in one, 
after at least these first two episodes because there's Nell at the workplace. There's a, a, a super straightforward workplace comedy going on here where she goes back to this newspaper. The owner of the newspaper is this uh, out-of-touch, entitled uh, white woman who got the job from her father who owns the paper and is a uh, former Olympian of uh, from dressage or another equestrian category. And she, her, her trauma in her life is that she like failed at the Olympics when her horse collapsed, which, uh, to be fair, would be very traumatic if you were an Olympic equestrian, but is also deeply out of touch. And so that's the kind of character they're painting there. Uh, and, and she's a little over the top, but that that's the boss at your workplace comedy. That's your Michael Scott. That's your Jack Donaghy. They're supposed to be over the top. And then she's got her more down-to-earth colleagues like Sam, who's her best friend and now the lifestyle section editor. Uh, her boss, the Metro desk editor, uh, Dennis, played by Josh. Uh, and and that that is the workplace comedy world where she deals with this very confusing job she has writing obituaries where the ghosts talk to her and no one else can see the ghosts. And that's the wacky workplace comedy we're watching. Then we're also watching this sort of coming-of-age story about a woman in her late 30s starting over and making new friends and struggling with uh, how her life has turned out. And that's the show where she lives with this roommate, Edward, and she meets new friends. She winds up... uh, really close friends very unexpectedly with the widow of the first ghost we meet in the first episode uh and and listen i i love this actress i love the character but it was kind of surprising to me that they're like oh yes the widow of the first ghost you met is now a series regular she owns a wine bar that nell hangs out at her name is cricket just go with it and i'm like i love it but also sort of a different show read though i think both of these things have been kind of played out for me both the uh workplace sitcom that is you know sort of that awkward comedy vibe uh that we saw like perfected so well with the office and the arrested development middle-aged person story so throwing them together kind of works for me uh i didn't mind it at all i also feel like having these ghosts be um more often senior characters you get a bit more variation in who just like who's on screen it's not a bunch of 30 and 40 somethings and so with that i feel like you get that delightful little network niche where you're hitting multiple demographics. I think that's really smart. And and overall, while I, you know, I introduced this as saying it's like two different shows kind of smushed together and that's that's strange. That's what's interesting to me because you're right. I, if it was just the newspaper workplace comedy but with ghosts, I'd be like, yeah, that's in, you know, I get the twist is the ghosts, but like otherwise it's the same show I've seen a, a dozen times. And if it was just the like middle-aged woman coming of age thing, I'd be like, yeah, that's like an Emily in Paris. Like I've seen it. I mean, you had to see it because uh, you lost that one question on Renewed or Cancelled. So Bing is contractually required to make you watch it, Diane. But, you know, in general, what I'm saying is we've seen that kind of show. Uh, And so combining them is a little risky in a way because I'm like, I don't know if those two things gel together. Uh, And after two episodes, it's too soon to say that the second episode uh, ends with uh, Nell taking her roommate Edward to Cricket's wine bar and all of them kind of having a laugh together. And that felt great. You know, it was it was unexpected and, and uh, heartwarming and a real nice button on that episode. Also, I was like, 
none of these characters are supposed to be her best friends. And that's also interesting because her best friend is supposed to be her, you know, co-worker at the paper. All the people she knows from her past life are at the paper. And so they're saying, no, she's also going to chart a new life at the same time. And that's interesting, but it is a lot to cram in in 21 and change minutes every week. And so I'm personally curious to just see how they balance it. I, though I have to say in the first two episodes, I thought the pacing was quite good. You know, not every joke is outstanding, but the show is sweet enough that I don't need it to be laugh out loud funny, to be honest. You know what I mean? It's just more like a, a delightful viewing. Yeah, and there is, it's heartwarming. Like, I had a little, like, emotional feeling in my chest at the end of the first episode when uh, the ghost, she's helping her first ghost, her first ghost, you never forget your first, uh, played by Martin Mull, uh, is uh, taking her to dinner, essentially. Her life is a mess, and he convinces her, go to dinner, I'll sit across from you, you won't look too crazy talking to me. Uh, at at your dinner alone. And she's doing all the things that you would do in in the cliched writing of a single person going to dinner by themselves at a restaurant. They're like, oh, I'm alone. It's so sad. It's so pathetic. And then she sees this woman, who it turns out is Cricket, sitting across the the restaurant eating alone. And uh, the ghost makes some reference like, no, you could be living in the moment like her. And Nell takes this as like an insult. Like, you're telling me if I don't change my ways, I'm going to turn into that sad old spinster woman. And, And that's when she realizes oh my god that's your widow isn't it you you brought me here because you knew she'd be here because you wanted to see her again and she has a little moment where she goes okay i'm gonna do something weird and brave and i'm gonna go over and tell this woman you look beautiful tonight because that's what the ghost wants to say and i you know he can't say it and then she sits down and has a glass of wine with cricket and then then because it's only 21 and a half minutes flash forward they're really good friends now and it turns out cricket owns a wine bar and nell hangs out there a lot you know a lot a lot of work to get that in the pilot but at the same time i there was something genuinely really heartwarming about that and and uh not what i expected from a 21 minute sitcom on abc Agreed. And I very much found myself wanting to sit in Cricket's wine bar with Nell and just like chat. And I think that to me is like a marker of a good, relaxing kind of sitcom, not appointment viewing, but just like the sort of thing where you're like, oh, I kind of want to hang out at Cheers or wherever, you know, Um, that's the kind of show that you can just turn on whenever. So if they can keep that up tonally, I think they might have a hit. I think that's true. And my one uh, remaining reservation is I love that part of the show you just described way more than I'm enjoying the workplace comedy. But it's early days and there's there's a lot they can still do there. And I don't, to be clear, I don't hate the workplace comedy part of the show. In the pilot, I think they do a really good job of uh, kind of pushing Nell to uh, disrupt this status quo that's formed around her existing friends, that she has to realize that they all moved on and had lives without her, and she's the one who left them. And for her to come back and want them all to be like the way things were before is unrealistic on her part and, and unfair on her part. And so there is a little more interesting tension in the workplace comedy side of the show that they've only just scratched the surface on and I think will make that part a little more rewarding than it it feels at the moment. Agreed. I think with the workplace comedy right now, it's the sort of thing we've seen done better elsewhere, but it has room to grow. Absolutely. And you know, speaking of places where the workplace comedy is killing it, 
Let's talk about another show. Airing on NBC, it's season two of American Auto. Yes, we are still talking about mid-season sitcoms. This time, we're talking about a mid-season sitcom that we missed last mid-season, and now it's back for a second mid-season, and uh, I'm loving it. I, I, this is American Auto on NBC, streaming on Peacock, starring Anna Gasteyer from Saturday Night Live fame, of course. Uh, this premiered a year ago. It's from the creator of Superstore. Completely, f- I heard about it. I knew it existed. I never uh, even knew how to watch it or when. And then uh, the AV Club put out an article, we'll link in the show notes, where they were really singing the praises of NBC's mid-season slate, uh, and American Auto was uh, high up on their list. And so I went, I gotta check this out, because Superstore, not a show I fell in love with initially, but I cannot deny Superstore is very good and really grew into itself and is an excellent uh, example of the workplace sitcom. And so you got the creator of the workplace sitcom going, I'm gonna do something with Anna Gasteyer. And I'm like, yeah, I I do want to check that out. Read. Yeah, this was so funny. And on the one hand, I should have just assumed it'd be so funny because it's Anna Gasteyer. She's amazing. But also the whole ensemble is just firing on all cylinders for me. Like the comedic timing on this show is outstanding. I mean, it is such a loaded cast of people who I think a lot of them you might go like, I, do I know you from something? Like, it's not full of A-list names, but it's full of A-tier talent. Agreed. Yeah, and folks that once you know what you know them from, you're like, oh, I love them. Absolutely. And the, the show basically is a workplace comedy set at a Detroit uh, auto company that is, you know, like much of the American auto industry, kind of struggling with the transition in technology that the American auto industry is going through. And so th- these are the, the staff at Payne Motors, and Anna Gasteyer is the CEO of Payne. And in I, I, listen, we didn't watch any of season one. We just jumped into the premiere of season two. And in the premiere of season two, uh, they immediately tell you everything you need to know. You do not need any previously on. There's none of that that shit. It's just, here we go, because this is a well-written workplace comedy. We can catch you up in like two minutes of dialogue. And the answer is they've released a car called the Hydra, which great name for a terrible fake car, that has some kind of cheapo part in it that they know is a cheapo defective part but no one's gotten into an accident yet because of it so they're like should we do a recall should we admit that we have this cheapo part and then they're like you know what we'll send somebody out to talk to the press and they send out sadie played by harriet dyer who completely falls apart in front of the press repeatedly through these episodes and is really enjoyable to watch uh and and she's of course saying well no one's there's been no accidents yet the the part hasn't failed on anyone's car it's not like anything's caught fire Cut to some people's car uh, getting out of control, uh, parked, rolling down a hill, starting a forest fire that that cut to three days later is now known as the pain fire and is burning untold numbers of acres. And they are in damage control as they try to save their brand and their jobs. Mm, Pitch perfect setup for a comedy. Agreed. The way it escalated very quickly and the way that this had so many... um reverberations with uh, news stories lately about, say, Tesla or other brands like that. Um, To me, it felt like a classic episode of Veep. 
yes, big Veep vibes in a lot of ways. Like, what if Veep was on network television instead of premium cable? The only thing that I'll say about that is part of the reason that Veep was able to be such effective satire, in my opinion, is that they were um, so completely narcissistic and uh, amoral, basically, on that show, like, that um, this show is there's still heart to it uh, because it's on network television. Like Anna Gasteyer's character, who is the CEO, really does, you know, you you do still kind of like her. That to me, it's a, it might not be as biting of satire. And I'm not sure that that's what it needs to do. I, it just is something that that stuck out to me. Yeah, I, I think it, you really have to think through what does it mean to say the Veep of network television? And it does mm-hmm. mean not Veep in a lot of ways, because, you know, these people are uh, maybe pitching despicable ideas, but you don't feel like they're despicable people. And and the whole setup of season two hinges on at the end of the uh, season two premiere, the uh, board at Payne Motors uh, goes to Anna Gasteyer and says, you know, we want to fire you for this scandal, basically. Will you take this really generous buyout offer and walk away? And she's like, yeah, I will. Uh, you know, she's like, that's yeah, this I, I I'm head has to roll. I'm the head in charge. And the buyout deals really good because this is a little veepish. And they point out like, yeah, rich people get their golden parachute. Right. Mm. But as she's signing the papers with the board, they're like, well, you know, a few heads have to roll. And they list all of the other series regulars. Right. Everyone else who are are the respectable characters on the show who you either love or you love to hate because like, oh, they're they're, you know, they're selfish and greedy and, and kind of terrible. But you love them for it. Uh, well, the board wants to fire all of them, too. And so Anna Gasteyer says, OK, actually, give us six months. If I can't salvage the stock price in six months, then you can fire me and give me none of my golden parachute. You can just kick me out the plane. Uh, and of course, the, the the board's like, sure, we'll take that deal. Uh, and so there is that heart of gold still that has to be at the center because it's a network sitcom. Right. Uh, I Yeah, I think the implications of what that means to have your somewhat Elon-like figure with a heart of gold out for his team doing his best, mm, we could get into on another kind of show. But... Um, <laughs> I do wonder if for me, it really spoke to this moment that we're in with television. And I wonder if uh, the writers had a a real life moment where they were like, give us six more months, please, please, you know, give us this second season arc. (laughs) We'll find our audience. Don't don't cut all these jobs. Yeah, not not wrong is what I'll say. Uh, and, and the way that they explore that, I think, is really funny. Because then in the second episode, it becomes about salvaging uh, Anna Gasteyer's reputation. Or, or her character's name's Catherine. So Catherine's reputation. Because ultimately, if they're going to turn around the stock price, they need to turn around the company's reputation. She's at the head of the company. They bring in uh, an outside like crisis manager to try to fix this. And then we kind of kick into a more traditional like sitcom format where there's the A story of like the things they're doing to save Catherine's reputation. And then the B story of the week, which is that this crisis manager they brought in is actually a sociopath and is trying to steal Sadie's job. 
And and that B story, while kind of like a little generic, plays out really well and is very funny and then ties into the A story really nicely in a way where I'm like, is it super original? No. But is it really well executed? Yeah. And I appreciate that. Agreed. And also there there was a, a juicy C story with the Twitter bots. Yes. Yes. Hilarious. That had some of my favorite jokes of the of the episode. Yeah, and you know, comparing to uh, Not Dead Yet, the joke per minute ratio in this show is near 30 rock levels. And they don't all they don't all hit, but that's that's not the point. When you have that high joke per minute ratio, the point is you're going to have more hits than misses in the grand scheme of things. Oh, absolutely. It certainly reminded me of 30 Rock, and it was great to see Donald uh, from 30 Rock yeah. on here. Um, Michael Benjamin Washington is great on this show. I mean, honestly, everyone in this supporting cast is fantastic on this show. Uh, and and that says a lot because, again, we jumped in with none of the setup from season one. And they, they don't have a lot of time for, like, backstory here. They feed you just enough information to get you caught up on who these people are and what their relationships are. And it it's super clear. Like, I feel like I know what most of the relationship dynamics on this show are after 42 minutes uh, in, in which they had a really busy amount of plot to get through. Most of the second episode revolves around Catherine eventually going on Seth Meyers. And so Seth Meyers, the, the actual human Seth Meyers, takes up a bunch of screen time. And yet somehow that didn't feel like it was robbing me of the other characters. Whereas on, you know, uh, Not Dead Yet, I did feel like I haven't gotten enough of some of the characters after two episodes to really know where they fit in their relationships with each other. And part of that feels maybe correct for Not Dead Yet, because she's figuring out where she is in her life. And so some of that is her perspective being shown to us, felt by us as the viewer. Uh, But here, you literally, within 20 minutes, I felt like all of these, I could identify their main character traits that I'm supposed to find interesting or funny about them. There's a will-they-won't-they relationship dynamic between two of them that just gets tossed out there in a kind of nice little genuine moment that, uh, you know what? Great. Toss that in. Give some, like, levity, some humanity to this veepish show. Like, all the right little notes kind of sprinkled in at the right moment, structurally really sound. Then you add in the like only on NBC synergy of the entire plot of the second episode is about going on Late Night with Seth Meyers. And of course, there's Seth Meyers and we're on the set of Late Night with Seth Meyers. And we're talking about Late Night with Seth Meyers a whole lot here in this episode of the NBC show that airs a couple hours before Late Night with Seth Meyers. Hey, and it worked. He's so funny seeing him and Anna like playing off each other was so fun. Excellent. I loved it. And so yeah, much of that. I was like, bring him back. Yeah, like so much of that appearance was about him revealing that he hates her as like a human, and then her kind of pivoting and uh, getting her gumption to actually nail the interview, which is again like a great little sitcom uh, A story trope, you know? Yeah. And to me, again, it's just really efficient storytelling. In these four episodes we're reviewing this week of two different shows, it was less screen time than the season premiere of The Last of Us. Now, again, this is very different content, but like the fact that we were introduced to so many characters, got so many jokes. I mean, I get why I I just love a network sitcom. I do. I really do. 
Same, same. Real economical, real focused, real funny. I felt like I got my money's worth in both of these shows. But but honestly, especially in American Auto, where I think my uh, uh, expectations were a bit lower. I, I, I had higher expectations of uh, Not Dead Yet, and it met them. It exceeded them a bit. But the expectations were already kind of high. Whereas American Auto, I was like, sure, I never really entertained the idea of watching it. But if, you know, the AV Club says it's worth checking out, they had they had nice things to say. The link is in the show notes. You can read them yourselves. I'm like, why not? I love Anna Gasteyer. It can't be... It can't be that bad. It reminded me a lot of uh, another doomed NBC sitcom. I hope this is not uh, foretelling, but Great News. Do you remember Great News? I do. Yeah, I saw a few episodes of that. That was another show that really couldn't make much of a mark for itself in its first season. But then I saw, I I believe, uh, the second season, and it was very funny. And then already doomed because nobody was watching it. Yeah, I do think with this type of show, um, because the jokes can build on each other and the the writers learn to write for their ensembles, it makes sense to me that something like American Auto is already so much better than Not Dead Yet, a show I liked a lot and I found really charming. But like in terms of quality of the comedy, American Auto is just at another level. And that's just like second season comedy writing is just always that little bit better i think i i agree i think you for most good sitcoms season two is where you hit your stride and is sometimes the strongest season of the show Uh, Mm -hmm. i'm looking at you arrested development but that's for another day Uh, but while we were talking about despicable uh, network families that you have to mention the bluths oh i love them Mm, i do too but you know uh just one joke i wanted to throw out there as an example this is not verbatim but an example of the kind of like really like what felt like again veepish in that it's super topical and super smart even when it's kind of dumb uh level of humor that you get on american auto and that's seth meyers in a monologue that they're watching uh in preparation for her interview with him compares anna gasteyer's cars to Vladimir Zelensky by saying Ukraine and Zelensky won't even accept these exploding cars. And and again, I'm I'm not telling the joke because he tells it well, and I'm just recounting a joke was told. But it's the kind of show where I can I gasped laughing at a Vladimir Zelensky exploding cars punchline in the middle of an ongoing war in that country. To be clear, but that is like there that that's the level of like yeah, Veep would make that joke. I don't know if network TV would be comfortable making that joke, because what if the war changes between when you write it and when you air it? But they're like, nah, we can make that joke, because you know what? Seth Meyers would make that joke, and this is in-universe. And I'm like, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It makes it feel both funny and real in a way that, like, Veep, again, felt funny and disturbingly real. Mm-hmm. We've talked a lot about, like, trends in comedy, and I think that most comedies are moving towards this Schitt's Creek-esque, warm, fuzzy feeling. And while there is just tinges of that around the edges of American Auto, it's much less of that. And it is very refreshing to me to see this kind of, uh, you know, a, a little bit edgier comedy on TV. Same. 
same, especially on network where we're we're ready for it. Network audiences mm-hmm. are ready for this. Don't be afraid. Don't don't wear the kid gloves. Um, I think in some ways Abbott Elementary kind of paved the way for this because while Abbott Elementary is feel good and uh, family friendly in a lot of ways, it's not uh, shy about the kind of politics that that they deal with on that show. Oh, I don't. I see. I think this is so much edgier than Abbott, and I love Abbott. I love that. I love that you think this is edgier than Abbott because I would say, yeah, edgier. But I would also say it's trying to strike that balance a little bit where it's edgy, but with a sprinkling of the feel good. Whereas Abbott's a lot Mm -hmm. more feel good, but it's got a balance of that edgy. Here's somebody going, we can go further. We can go edgier. You know, it's not as edgy as the Bluths. You don't hate these people the way you hate the Bluths, kind of. But you also kind of love them. And and this show is like, what if we more intentionally told you to love them, but you still kind of hated them? Yeah, I think that's fair. I also think, you know, in Abbott season two, you've got the janitor becoming part of the main cast. And for me, he's often got that bit of the edge. You know, they have the mm-hmm. joke early on where he's telling kindergartners about the Illuminati and you're like, oh, dear, <laughs> you know, um, that uh, it shows that they're open to moving farther in that direction which is great do it all of network tv do it get weird get edgy get QAnon. get interesting <laughs> literally please and you know listener if you're finding an edgy interesting uh, artificial intelligence recommended sitcom in your life tell us about it uh, podcast at streamageddon.com is where you can send those recommendations. Uh, for example, I watched the pilot of Animal Control on Fox. That is the new, um, I was going to say Jeff Winger vehicle. I mean, Joel McHale vehicle. But if you're wondering what it would be like if Community's Jeff Winger was in Animal Control, that's basically the concept of this show. What if we took the character from Community and instead of being a former lawyer, he was a former cop? And what if instead of being in a community college, he was at an animal control department? And then we filled it in with an ensemble. There you go. Sitcom. Hey, I'd give it a shot. Honestly, you should, because if you like Jeff Winger on Community, that's basically enough to watch this show. Uh, And if we find it interesting, perhaps we'll come back and tell you more about it. Uh, But until then, listeners, so much we talked about this week. Such a jam-packed episode. My eyes are bleeding Thanks to the AI. And if you stay tuned past our, you know, lovely credits music, we're going to share a little AI bonus content with you because guess what? The artificial intelligence sounds smart, but is it smart? You'll have to find out after you say it with me, Diane. Keep Keep streaming. Okay, okay, but that does bring me uh, bring me to our bonus little content here. Uh, I was trying to do show research this week by uh, asking Bing, uh, and so I asked Bing about all the shows we watched this week, and, and Bing actually had a lot of very accurate things to say about many of the shows we discussed this week. Just for an example, uh, they gave me a possible slogan for American Auto. They said, a car company that's driven by chaos. That's a good possible slogan for American Auto. I will give them that. Uh, I then asked for a summary, and they said, American Auto, a workplace comedy that follows the misadventures of executives and employees at a struggling Detroit car company. Uh, okay. That is that is really intelligent for the AI, right? That's what I watched. 
Yeah. Okay, now tell me if this matches your experience of Not Dead Yet. Not Dead Yet. A horror comedy that revolves around a group of friends who discover that their town is infested with zombies and have to survive the apocalypse with humor and brains. Mm, Shaun of the Dead? Not that's Dead a, Yet. That's... A zombie comedy that's alive and kicking. These are what uh, uh, Bing gave me, which, you know, uh, Diane, to your point, you asked me, is Bing just confusing Not Dead Yet with a different show? Yeah, I mean, that's what it seems like, right? Or is Bing just creating shows and pitching them to us? I, I think it might be that, because here's where it gets really weird. I eventually did get Bing to tell me about the correct Not Dead Yet, the one that airs on ABC. And then it offered to tell me more about the cast. And I went, yeah, tell me more about the cast. Because again, on the other shows, it's done a decent job of saying, you know, well, Anna Gasteyer stars as Catherine, and the, she's the CEO. And I'm like, oh, that's accurate. That's accurate. So uh, listen to this. And, and uh, Diane, you will begin to notice where this goes wrong, but it sounds correct, right? On Not Dead Yet, some of the other actors are Hannah Simone as Sam, Nell's best friend and roommate. Lauren Ash as Net Lexi, Nell's boss at a fashion magazine. Rick Glassman as Edward, Nell's ex-husband. Josh Banday as Dennis, Nell's co-worker and love interest. And Angela Gibbs as Cricket, Nell's neighbor who gives her life advice. And this is where it gets weird, because that sounds like a description of a bunch of characters. And in fact, some of the names sound right, and the actor names uh, appear to be correct. Except it is just riddled with inaccuracies about the characters and their relationships. Just constant, uh, constantly wrong. Uh, we'll start with Hannah Simone as Sam, Nell's best friend and roommate. Uh, Sam is Nell's former best friend. She is not her roommate. Her roommate is... Uh, Edward, played by Rick Glassman, who Bing said is Nell's ex-husband. That is not correct. He is her roommate. Uh, Josh Banday is Dennis, Nell's co-worker and love interest. He is definitely gay and her boss. Definitely not a love interest there. Uh, Angela Gibbs as Cricket, Nell's neighbor who gives her life advice. She does give life advice, but she is the widow of a ghost who owns a wine bar which is not the same thing as being a neighbor. I just, and oh, uh, Lexi, uh, editor of the fashion magazine, it's not a fashion magazine, it's a local newspaper owned by Lexi's father. They repeatedly talk about how it's a local newspaper owned by Lexi's father. So again, just wow, so confident, so, like, th that was the description of a list of characters that would appear theoretically in a sitcom. Yes, just not this one. The AI can't replace us quite yet because it's wrong. What, what, what's scary about this, too, though, is if the writers do go on strike, the AI just pitched a fully functional sitcom. It just thought it already existed. True. Though I think one of the things that we've seen as we've reviewed all these shows is that it's not just a premise for a show that determines if it's good or bad. There are like shows like Not Dead Yet, which the premise is a little clumsy because you're taking halves of two shows and kind of smooshing them together, yet it somehow works because of the quality of the writing. So you need human writers or maybe ghost writers who are recently deceased and still among us, but I don't think they can be artificially intelligent writers. Not yet, at least. So sorry to tell you that, Bing. <laughs> our eyes are bleeding, but our hearts are full because no one can replace the humans. Yay, writers, we support you. <laughs>
for, for now, as long as it gets us a job too, okay? Fingers crossed. There you go, sitcom.